Hello and welcome to the Christchurch Waco Catechesis Podcast. I'm Father Lee Nelson, the Rector of the Congregation. It's good to have you with us this morning, or this day, or whatever time it is for you. Uh, first, let us begin with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with your most gracious favor, and further us with your continual help, that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name, and finally, through your mercy, obtain everlasting life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're looking today at the Sixth Commandments. We're continuing on with our uh, session on the Ten Commandments. This is the last pillar of the Catechism. Um, you may remember that the Catechism and classic Christian Catechisms have had three main pillars or uh, areas of instruction. They are uh, the, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. So first we teach you what we believe about God, and then we teach uh, people how to pray, and then we teach people how to live. And um, each one follows the other, and it's very important that we remember this because um, there's a there's a problematic idea of Christianity and Christian teaching out there today that essentially says something like this you know the, the purpose of being a good Christian is to is to do good works and be a good person and and um, that's not really the case the purpose of being a Christian and, and the final purpose of God is, is actually um, as Father Nicholas said in the sermon today uh, friendship with Jesus Christ to uh, to enjoy uh, the glory that is his at the right hand of the Father for all eternity um, and that means that God has to do something about our human condition. We uh, can't do anything about our human condition. And so if we want to progress in the moral life, the church teaches us that, that we need to be uh, constantly receiving the grace of the sacraments. We need to constantly be uh, in a, a posture of prayer and in a discipline of prayer. And uh, you might think, well, you know, we're going to talk about murder today, and I'm not a murderer. Um, but I think, as you'll discover, uh, every, every human being has some manner of murder murderousness in their heart. And uh, we're going to talk about that today. How do you conquer that? How do you uh, overcome that? Well, um, the Christian tradition teaches us very strongly that uh, to overcome the hatred and the, and the, and the, really the darkness of our hearts, we must uh, be knit uh, to God through Jesus Christ. We must uh, be full of the Holy Spirit. Um, we must commit to a discipline of prayer. And, uh, and finally, you know, we actually actually have to know what the teaching is on these questions. We have to know what qualifies as murder. Uh, and as I'll say uh, later, um, that's not always clear to people today. And so uh, I'm going to spend some time on that as well. But we're going to begin on page 101 in the Catechism. This is uh, To Be a Christian, an Anglican Catechism. It's available through Crossway. You can uh, buy copies through the church office. You can also uh, just go on Amazon and order a copy, and it'll show up at your door two days later. Uh, so there it is. Uh, question 307 on page 101. What is the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment is, you shall not murder. The reference there is Exodus 20, verse 13, and Deuteronomy 5, uh, 17. Uh, I like to do this with kids, you know, where are the Ten Commandments found in Scripture? I actually like to do it with uh, those who are uh, uh, being prepared for ordination as well. What? Where are the Ten Commandments found in Scripture? Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. <laughs> it should become sort of the like Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Okay, now you have it. Um, turning the page to question 308, what is murder? Murder is the willful and unjust taking of human life. So, in the Catechism, we describe murder strongly. There are many people who have memorized this commandment as thou shalt not kill, and killing is not actually what's said in uh, the, the rendering of the commandments in Scripture. It's actually murder. Murder is different from killing, and, uh, and we'll show you why that is. First off, it's willful. Um, 
it is something that you will in your uh, your will um, and um, uh, depending on how you see human uh, anthropology, you can either say, well, the will is, is in the mind somewhere or it's in the heart. But either way, it, it's an aspect of human life whereby we make uh, decisions, whereby we act. Um, the will moves us to act in ways that are, uh, well, particularly voluntary. We decide we're going to do it and we do it. Um, and it's also unjust. And it, justice uh, in the Christian tradition is very much tied to this understanding of um, people have rights. They have, um, uh, they have uh, rights that are given to them by God. And to deprive people of those rights, um, and particularly things like you know, the right to, uh, to the processes of law and the right to their, uh, to their own property and the right to all manner of things, the right to their life, um, this is all bound up in this. And if you take it without uh, without the necessary legal processes that are involved in that, um, you've taken a life unjustly. And we're going to say more about why that is. Question 309. Why does God prohibit murder? Because every human being is made in God's image. All human life is sacred from conception to natural death. Therefore, I may not take the life of others unjustly. So an unjust killing is by definition one uh, which deprives someone of their human life uh, between the points of conception and natural death, and I'll say more about that. Um, why? Well, because the human being is made in God's image, and as I said uh, last week, echoing the editor of this catechism, uh, to be made in the image of God means that you are made to be like Jesus, to enjoy the glory of the Father for all eternity. And to be deprived of that, uh, and, and that not only means in the next life, but in this life as well, and to be deprived of uh, that that wonderful calling of human life and that wonderful purpose which is built into human life and human nature, um, we by murdering another and actually by demeaning human life in any way, we we uh, commit an atrocity against God. Um, human life is sacred, and we use boilerplate here. And I want to say this very strongly: this is boilerplate pro-life language. Um, straight out of the right to life movement, straight out of the pro-life movement from conception to natural death. Um, what do we mean by this? Well, it means that human life begins at conception. So when, uh, when sperm meets egg, uh, human life begins. Um, and it is sacred and sacred before God and should be sacred before us till natural death. Um, by natural death, we simply mean that uh, that, that death cannot be hastened through um, unnatural means. Uh, we certainly know that people die through all manner of things, and it's very awful and, and horrifying. But um, we do know there's a difference between natural death and hastening death um, in any unnatural way. Um, and, and we'll outline what those are, because here they are in verse 310. What other actions are considered murder? Genocide, infanticide, abortion, suicide, and euthanasia are all forms of murder. Sins of murderous intent include physical and emotional abuse, abandonment, willful negligence, and wanton recklessness. Now, I'm going to take a good amount of time to go through these, but I want to spend some time on, uh, on, on several more than others. And so uh, if you have questions about any of this, you can uh, contact me through email. Um, but let's start with genocide. Um, genocide, of course, is the, is the killing of a nation of people, of an ethnic uh, group, um, killing uh, a, a wide number of people, a very large number of people, um, with, uh, with murderous... Um, um, and in fact, many times they have the authority to do so, uh, but of course, all authority is subject to God in Christian understanding, and so uh, this, is, this is an implicitly evil thing. 
Um, what I want to say about this today is that you know I've, I've had the wonderful uh, privilege of visiting Rwanda on a couple occasions, and um, we've toured there. The uh, people from the parish have toured the uh, genocide memorial and have seen the effects of genocide. Um, people in that country were stirred up to uh, to murder a million of an ethnic minority, uh, which was actually you know the, the wild thing was that it was an ethnic ethnic minority which was made up uh, by Belgian colonialists in Rwanda, um, and and they simply killed um, a million of these people, and with machetes and and it was stirring up the people to mass frenzy of murder. Uh, there's a kind of mob mentality which can often take place in genocide, uh, where people do wild and and uh, and crazy things. Um, I say this because uh, you know it's often in our minds that you know if I was in that position, I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't participate in that genocide. Um, and yet, when I was in Rwanda, I heard uh, stories of priests locking their people inside their churches. Um, and then letting the the, uh, the the perpetrators of the genocide into the church to kill until they were done. Um, this happened in numerous places, whole stadiums being filled with people and then uh, locked uh, so that this genocide could go forward. Um, there is uh, a darkness in the human heart uh, that is particularly tied to wanting to do what is acceptable, wanting to do what is common, wanting to do what the mob is doing. And uh, Christians have to... Uh, being subject to the Lord Jesus Christ, have to say, uh, I will not uh, go with the mob. I will not do what the mob is doing. Um, so there's a, a particular emphasis there. Um, infanticide, the killing of infants. Um, uh, this is a very ancient uh, practice. It goes on way back. Um, we read in the, New, in the Old Testament that, uh, that the people had sacrificed their sons and daughters before uh, the many foreign gods, especially Moloch, uh, who demanded uh, human sacrifice of children. Uh, and in fact, in Roman times, uh, one of the ways to do this was to expose uh, a, a newborn child that was unwanted uh, on a, uh, an exposure wall, which was a kind of... Um, wide wall with niches in it and you would put the baby there um, or you would take the baby out to a field and let the baby die um, of hunger and starvation and, and, uh, and exposure. Um, the, the ancient church was so strong against this, so strong against this, that uh, they wound up just adopting all the children who were left in these exposure walls and, and they were silent. Um, this was a place where there was always crying and always just children dying and the society watched this. They let this go on. Um, we don't have um, widespread infanticide today, and largely that's because of our Christian heritage as a nation, uh, but we do have a lot of things going on which are very concerning. For instance, um, partial birth abortion, uh, things like, um, uh, uh, you know, very, very, very small children who uh, certainly have the possibility of some manner of recovery, and uh, doctors simply uh, refuse any further treatment. And uh, and uh, and they and they start to actually in many cases um, start to starve these children to death, but we just do it in hospitals. And so um, you know this is still something that does happen today, and, and I want to make you aware of that. Um, and uh, and we Christians uh, need to stand against it. We Christians also need to build up a uh, a ministry of adoption. Um, adoption shows forth the gospel so clearly. 
abandonments. You were uh, you were abandoned. You were left. You were uh, you were a victim of the cruelty of sin. And now we take you into our family and we give you our name and we give you our um, our lives. Um, this is an image of the gospel, of course. Um, next, we list abortion. Um, abortion is a widespread. Uh, 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 sin and injustice in our society today. Uh, usually in any given year, 1.2 million babies are aborted uh, in this country. And uh, it's something which um, I, I'm, uh, as a pastor and priest, very concerned about and have been a part of the pro-life movement for a long time. Uh, we work with a local uh, um, ministry called CareNet uh, to provide uh, a ministry to uh, mothers who are um, uh, potential or who, who could be um, uh, potentially drawn into uh, the, the possibility of abortion, and so we're very um, concerned about this. And we we give several thousand dollars a year to County CareNet. Um, but but the, the the thing I want to say today is is simply this: that um, if you have had a past history of abortion, either as a man or as a woman, um, there is restoration for you. And so I want to say that. Um, First and foremost, that uh, abortion is not an unforgivable sin; it can absolutely be forgiven, and uh, uh, but, but it does take um, a sobriety about what it was that you did, and um, that's why we teach it. We teach it so that you can say, "Oh, I did that," and and uh, and, and I really need to repent of it. Um, uh, abortion is uh, is is. Uh, uh, the, the rhetoric surrounding abortion in this country is that of, of a kind of human freedom that Christians ought to reject. It's this idea that uh, a person cannot be free if they have a child who depends on them. It's this idea that you can't really be free to pursue all of these wide variety of economic uh, and, and social goods if you have a child. Um, and, and that's a very... Um, it's a very problematic position to take. It's a very problematic idea of freedom uh, that, that sits behind it. Um, and in fact, the legalization of abortion in this country is tied explicitly uh, to a kind of um, right to privacy that was really created whole cloth uh, for the new realities of the sexual revolution. Um, and so it needs to be said that, that uh, Christians oppose this kind of freedom. You know, if your freedom demands the death of another, then can it really be freedom? Um, is it really freedom to do the good or is it just freedom to do as you please? And so uh, we see in American life that, uh, and in, in life throughout the world that there's this conception of freedom which says freedom is the ability to do whatever I want and to pursue all the ends that I want and all the economic and social and, um, and all the other ends. Um, and now you know, certain things like education, we hear that rhetoric all the time. You know? uh, a teenage girl should be able to get an abortion so that she can pursue an education. Um, and what this involves is it involves putting certain ends above human life. And Christian teaching on this issue is that um, human life is uh, absolute good. Um, it is an unqualified good, meaning that human life is not good insofar as, or good as in as much as. Um, it's not good only if the person uh, that's under consideration is a good person, right? No, it's, it's, it's unqualifiedly good. Well, why? Because we hold that, uh, that every human being is made in the image of God. Um, and even the ones who do really nasty, evil things are made in the image of God. That image has been bent. That image has been, uh, has been um, uh, broken. It's broken in all of us, right? We know this. I mean, 
we, we, I just talk to any one of you and I can say, what's not going right in your life today? <laughs> and uh, uh, where are the places where you fall short? And, and, and you know, if, if you're an honest person and not a psychopath, you'll tell me, right? Um, so this is important that we see this, that uh, murder actually, in, uh, from, the, from the scriptural perspective, is almost always exercised as a kind of, um, of rejection of uh, the image of God in another. It's also done so that I can exercise a kind of freedom that I believe I'm entitled to, but to which I'm not entitled to. So a great example would be, uh, you think about Cain and Abel in the Garden of Eden, and, uh, or well, outside the Garden of Eden, and they, in the, in the beginning, we'll say, um, and Cain kills his brother Abel. Why? Well, the letter of Hebrews tells us because uh, his deeds were evil and his brothers were good, and he wanted to continue doing evil things. Um, and part of the evil there was uh, was thinking about, in particular, his economic life as one who, who works in creation as uh, a farmer to bring forth the fruits of the earth. He wanted to do it on his terms. And of course, we see, even in creation, that this is not something that, that we are entitled to do. Um, we have to much more consider ourselves as partners with God in creation. Uh, but I want to say this, that, uh, that anytime we could sort of take our freedom to the point where we say, well, um, I, I, need, I need someone to die so that I can do what I want, uh, this is always inherently evil. You think about uh, David um, and his interactions uh, with Bathsheba. He, he, uh, he sees her from his balcony. He looks down on her in lust. He decides he wants her. And so uh, he, he gets her. He, he calls for her. And he conceives a child with her. And her husband, one of his generals, uh, um, is, uh, is, becomes the victim of a murder because David wants Bathsheba. Um, so all of that is to say that murder is, an, is you can almost just say it like this, it's, it is an unlawful and unjust exercise um, of our human will, always. We can also say that suicide is, is a form of murder. Um, this is a very unpopular uh, position to take today, and, and Christians who say as much are often considered to be cruel, etc. Now, I want to say at this point that um, you know, I know better than many people uh, the, the tragedy that is uh, mental illness. And so please understand I've got a great deal of compassion and empathy for uh, those who suffer from mental illness, and especially those who suffer from mental illness to the point where they're suicidal. Um, but we have to say, we have to say that the intent, this willful intent behind suicide is, is inherently disordered. It's wrong. Um, and, and if you commit suicide, you've committed an act of evil. Now, is this to say that you were fully 100% uh, culpable in that act? Well, maybe not. I mean, there, there are levels of culpability, right? And, and, uh, and, we, and we can say, can suicide be forgiven? Well, it, you know, certainly in God's economy, um, anything can be forgiven. Um, but we do want to say that suicide is evil. And, and I should say this strongly. Suicide rates have been increasing in recent years. And I think the reason is, if I can just kind of look at it as an observer of culture, is that uh, we have an increasingly nihilistic culture, um, a culture which is not only nihilistic, but is, uh, you know, you see the rise of the nuns, right? Not N-U-N-S, but uh, N-O-N-E-S, um, uh, people who just have no uh, uh, religious ideas at all. And many of these people um, are, are being formed in a um, cultural sensibility 
that largely revolves around uh, their duty to care. Um, but without any, uh, it's, it's almost all utilitarian in essence. Um, and this is a this is a very problematic way to be, right? Because you can never care enough is one problem. And you can never really care enough. We're taught as Christians that by the grace of God, we can love. Um, but, but there are things that we kind of have to let go of. <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are things that happen in the world that we have to, we have to exercise some prudential distance from. Um, and so uh, there's, a, there's a way in which we can say that, uh, and going back to suicide for a moment, um, that that uh, we have a we have a whole generation of people that are coming up who who are just deeply perplexed by the kind of duty that they've been enculturated in, uh, and they feel hopeless in the midst of it. Like there's nothing I can do about it. Well, and largely, I think from from a Christian perspective, we'd say, well, you know, in a sense, that's right. You know, by your own will, you you can't do anything about these incredible evils that we face in our day. Um, but by God's grace, you can. By God's help, you can. Um, God cares about these things, and He will empower His people to do things about it, and and He will instantiate His kingdom in those dark places of this world. That's the hope that we have as Christians, and without that hope, um, you know, suicide is understandable in a certain sense, um, but it is still sinful because it's the taking of your own life um, in a willful way, and and in this case, you know, um, suicide almost always involves <laughs> well, it does involve always um, a, a willful act. You know, anything else we just call an accident. But, but suicide is a willful act. Finally, uh, euthanasia. Now, euthanasia is a place where our society and culture is actually shifting morally. Um, not all people agree that uh, killing the old or killing the, uh, the, the terminally ill or killing those who are horribly sick is a bad thing. Um, but Christians agree on this. We say, no, euthanasia is, is, is an evil Right. Um, because we believe that uh, death cannot be hastened in any way that is unnatural. Why? Well, because human life is sacred from conception to natural death. Now, at this point, we have to have some, some clarity about this. And, and um, you know, one of the things I just say in practical terms is that Christians do not reject things like hospice care, which is a kind of um, palliative care that is... Uh, focused upon a person who's dying, who's received a terminal um, diagnosis. And it's, it's focused on letting them die without anxiety and without pain uh, in a humane way. Preserving them from things that we can preserve them from, but not preserving them uh, and not taking further medical action uh, to, to try to extend their life. Um, well, at the same time, uh, not standing in the way of that natural death. So uh, there have been many instances as a priest where uh, I've, I've uh, been present when uh, the proverbial plug is pulled. No, it's not like that. It's just switching off a machine, right? A ventilator, a heart uh, machine, things like that. And what, what, we're, what we're essentially saying there is that this is not euthanasia. And the reason it's not euthanasia is because um, this person, without that technology, without that kind of like technology which will just extend their life, uh, would be dead. And so... To remove that technology that's keeping them alive is not sinful. Now, to hasten their death in a way that uh, that would be um, uh, disordered and, and immoral 
right? And, and there's a line walked here, which is which is clearer than it seems at first. Uh, um, sometimes it's like, well, how do you make that determination? Well, you know, if you if you, if you study very far, you'll start to see that there is there is a line that that, that can't be crossed. Um, these things are allowed, right? They're allowed because uh, this person, uh, apart from this uh, life support system, would be dead. At the same time, Christians hold, um, and the church teaches us, that um, we can't do things like revoke um, basic hydration, nutrition. Um, uh, to starve a body to death is murder. To uh, dehydrate a body to death is murder. Um, it's a terrible way to die, first of all. But, but the thing, this is the key, right? The key is to hold. That, for instance, if you can't breathe on your own, it's because your lungs are so damaged that you can't breathe on your own. And uh, and if there doesn't seem to be any way to fix that, um, then to turn off the ventilator is uh, is is acceptable because your lungs are the thing. The problem in your lungs is what's killing you. Okay? Um, if your heart is damaged to the point where you have to be on bypass in order to live, um, then your heart is not. So you've actually kind of experienced the first part of your natural death, right? Um, and and you will die without this machine. And we can also say of other things too. For instance, so there there are often cases in the hospice where you know to uh, continue to uh, give someone saline through their IV is actually cruel because it causes other problems that cause a great deal of pain. Um, so there's there's a, there's a line to walk. And, and the reason I say all this, let me just get to the down to the point. The reason I say all this is that um, it is often the position of Christian clergy uh, to serve as advisors um, in this kind of way. Um, either to the family as they make end-of-life decisions or to be, uh, as, as some people at Christ Church have done, to be the designated power of attorney, the medical power of attorney, who makes those decisions on your behalf. Having talked with you about it, having spent time with you about this, um, having even taught you about it, uh, and you say, I would like Father Nelson to make those decisions and not my parents. Or I'd like, you know, and, and sometimes that takes a great burden off the family who's struggling with all of this grief and all of this, uh, 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 all of this. Uh, this, this struggle and this sorrow. Um, and the other thing I'd say about that too, uh, as an encouragement to you in this, is that um, many people today uh, have never experienced death. They've never seen a dead body. They've never uh, been with someone who's dying. They've never sat with someone as they die. Um, and and sometimes it's just for me to say, I have, <laughs> I have many times, uh, and I'm and I'm used to it, and it doesn't surprise me, and it's not shocking to me, and and uh, I'm comfortable with it, and so let me bear some of that burden for you. Okay, so that's that's something I want to encourage you to do, and I can I can give you some resources on that. Now, when we get to sins of murderous intent. Um, we're including things like physical and emotional abuse, abandonment, willful negligence, and wanton recklessness. These, in a legal consideration, are often considered not murder but manslaughter or a lesser degree of murder because they don't involve uh, premeditation. Um, but, but let's break them down a little bit. Physical and emotional abuse. Um, lots of families can be described by physical and emotional abuse. And what this is, is it's often a kind of uncaringness. It's a, it's a way of saying, I don't care about you. And um, many children have experienced this, this severe emotional abuse of being unwanted. Um, and, and their parents essentially say as much. Um, sometimes it's as simple as, you know, we want you to be this kind of person, and if you're not this kind of person, then we don't want you. Well, that's not, that's not Christian parents should never say things like that. <laughs> what, what they, or, or you're inconvenient to us until you're like this. Um, 
Christian parents are called upon to love their children unconditionally. Now, does that mean love them without any kind of discipline? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that they're to love them unconditionally. <laughs> and, and so I want to put that up, for, up there for you. And that physical abuse, which often is there, is a form of murder. It says, I have the prerogative over your sacred human body to do what I want to you. Um, and so that physical abuse uh, can be very, very dangerous. Um, now, I want to say this as well. Um, this often raises this question, well, you know, where do Christians stand on certain forms of corporal punishment? And I would say, um, you know, some children <laughs> require it in order to have their their um, their uh, their character formed in a, in a, in a way that uh, busts through their kind of physical impulses. Um, but, but we should avoid it as well at the same time. And I want to say that, um, uh, because some people just don't know how to handle themselves when it comes to that. Um, and so, uh, if you want to talk about that, I can talk about that with you later. Um, when we talk about things like abandonment, um, to abandon a child, to abandon, um, your duty towards a child or to abandon your duty towards someone who's sick is a form of murderous intent. Um, uh, and sometimes that can be a terrifyingly horrible thing. I mean, in my neighborhood, there was a woman a few weeks ago who, uh, who left the house with her two disabled children, um, in the house alone. And she was arrested and taken to jail. Um, she probably had nowhere near the, the amount of resources she needed to be able to do that job effectively, um, or well, and, uh, she was probably struggling with crisis herself. Um, and you should have compassion on that. Um, but, but that kind of abandonment is, is wrong. <laughs> and we can say it without, without even saying we're going to condemn you. We just say, well, that, that, that's wrong. You shouldn't, no one should do that. Um, and we also bear a kind of collective responsibility for a lot of this. This is important too, that, um, when we talk about sin and murder, sin, especially the mur the sin of murder, um, we as a society bear guilt for the, for murder that takes place. Um, and, uh, and we'll talk more about that as well. Um, but, but we very often abandon people in their greatest need. We very often um, neglect uh, those who need someone to look after them. And that's where we go to willful negligence. Um, to to uh, be willfully negligent, um, and I'd use the case of, um, of uh, something not being safe in your home, for instance, and someone comes to your house and they, uh, and they die because something wasn't safe. And, and you just were willfully negligent. You just you just didn't do what a reasonable person would do uh, to make your home a safe place. Um, that's the kind of negligence we're talking about. And also wanton recklessness. Um, this includes things like reckless driving can be murderous. Um, reckless uh, uh, comportment of yourself um, in the midst of, of a very uh, of a tense situation. Um, can be very much a kind of wanton, wanton recklessness. Um, Christians are not to be reckless. Um, and, and the reason is that we actually believe there's value that goes beyond ourselves. People get reckless when they think I'm the only person who matters, you know? And so you, you must, you must, uh, you must defer to me and my desire to be wild and crazy. No, we, we say, um, uh, that, that we must comport ourselves with, with dignity. Uh, and that's, that's important as well. And it, and it keeps us from certain forms of, of kind of negligence and uh, murderous intent that, that we ought to keep ourselves from. Okay, question 311. How did Jesus extend the law against murder? Jesus taught that this commandment also forbids the vice of ungodly anger. A murderous heart can lead to hatred, threatening words, violent acts, and murder itself and is counter to God's life-affirming love. What about that last phrase is hit? God's life-affirming love. God does not believe 
that human life is worthless. Um, God affirms life and says that life is sacred at every single level. Um, Jesus commands uh, that we avoid uh, this ungodly anger. Um, he, he says very strongly that you know, you, anyone who calls his, his brother raka or fool is liable to the, to the fires of hell um, to murder our brother, to express a murderous intent against our siblings or our parents or our whatever it might be, or our friends or our neighbor. Um, is a form of murder. And the law is extended against this. Um, for instance, in places like Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 22, which is actually in the Sermon on the Mount, um, and also in verse 43 and 45 to 45, uh, the, the law is extended in this way to extend even to the murder of the human heart. There's this idea, and I think, you know, as soon as you heard, uh, we're going to be talking about the, the sixth commandment today. Oh, well, that's good. You know, I, that's, that's the one commandment I haven't broken. And it's like, well, don't be so sure about that. Don't be so sure about that. Many, many people have... Um, have committed uh, forms of murder uh, that are, are absolutely horrific, and, um, and in ways that we might just say, "Well, what's the big deal? I don't understand what's the, what's the big deal." Right. Um, so that's an important thing to, to just come right out and say. Um, uh, have you lashed out in anger towards another? Um, have you told someone else that they're worthless? Have you? Uh, <laughs> said things like, you know, I said just very terribly demeaning things to someone. Um, this is all, this all runs counter to this. And why is this? Well, because it's the heart that, that, uh, where, where evil originates, right? We, we, we have a certain understanding of human, of human life that says that, you know, it's, it's actually not my head that reasons out these evils. It's actually something much more intuitive, much more, uh, bound up in, um, this sort of um, irrational part of me. Uh, and it's my murderous heart uh, that leads to this hatred of another, uh, that leads to uh, words of threat, um, violent acts against my neighbor, uh, and finally murder itself. Um, so this is absolutely important. We, we have to say this, that uh, no one just sort of wakes up one day and becomes a murderer. <laughs> it's, it's that uh, murder originates in a heart that is not um, uh, humbled towards God and humbled towards God's will. So say that strongly. How do you get there? Well, you get there by prayer, right? You, 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 you ask for this murderousness to be removed from your heart. It's something that you know, uh, the, the, the saints tell us we need to do. We really do need to pray that this murder will be rooted out from our heart. All right. Is question three twelve? Is anger always sinful? Well, godly anger is a just response to wickedness and injustice. We are more often led into ungodly anger by fear, pride, and revenge. We should therefore be slow to anger and quick to forgive. Um, Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian, uh, teaches that anger is actually something that God builds into human nature. Why? Well, because he wants us to be horrified by acts of injustice. He wants us to be, uh, to be roused to action when we see wickedness and injustice. So that's just straight up. We, sh we should be roused to anger. We should see uh, things that uh, are unjust, and we should be roused to anger. Um, what often happens on the downward slope of that is that uh, we maintain our anger to such a point where we're seeking vengeance, where we're seeking uh, to have our fears and our prides and our pride built up. 
And that anger goes from godly anger to ungodly anger. And the line is blurred. Uh, it's a very easy thing to tempt people to do. I mean, I think the enemy uh, uh, delights in this, right? And say, well, I can take godly anger that God built in and I can twist it and I can bend it and I can shape it uh, to be something evil. Um, and, um, and people have asked me, well, you know, how do I know that, that my anger is gone? Well, several examples, several ways, right? One is um, you just don't think about it that much anymore. Right? You, you've, you've let go of it. Another is you tend to pray for your enemies, right? Instead of uh, cursing them and saying, I'll just be blunt, saying, damn you, right? We say, Lord, bless so-and-so. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how awful they've been. They don't know how, how much injustice they've racked up. They don't know how much they've done uh, to hurt others, right? That's how you know. You started to pray for them. Um, it's not an act of pride. It's not an act of, of deciding that, that uh, certain vengeance must be enacted. Okay. Um, I just got finished watching um, a wonderful uh, uh, television series, uh, British TV, uh, Broadchurch. And uh, there's a character whose son has been brutally murdered. And he has the occasion to talk with the murderer off the record and ask, you know, tell me what happened. Um, and he doesn't explicitly forgive the murderer. But hearing this uh, actually leads to uh, him letting go of it. Um, and so uh, one of the things I want to say today is that, um, that you know, we can forgive. We absolutely can forgive. Um, we can, uh, we can uh, run to God with all of our desire for justice, believing that he will give it. And we can let go of that fear and let go of that anger and let go of that pride. And what this means is that we, we will be slow to anger, meaning that um, anger is not just sort of a quick knee-jerk response, um, but, but builds up slowly uh, and, and leads us to uh, more considered, more measured, more prudent action. It also leads us to forgiveness. Um, one of the most astoundingly beautiful uh, examples of this forgiveness uh, that's happened in recent years was um, when that young guy uh, shot up that church in Charleston. And uh, one of the women who was murdered that night was the wife of a priest in the Anglican Church of North America, um, a, a wonderful priest in the Reformed Episcopal Church. And he was one of the ones who stood before that young man and expressed his forgiveness of that of that young man. Um, does that mean that that young man shouldn't face the uh, the penalty that he is facing? By the way, he's he's actually on federal death row, which has been um, the federal uh, uh, executions have begun again. Um, well, potentially, <laughs> I'll say potentially. Uh, but but what it means is that there has been a showing of of forgiveness, of, of freely offered um, detachment from the anger. Um, and, uh, and it says that even this murderer has a dignity. Um, even this man who, who did a terribly evil act of hatred um, is worthy of being loved. So that's what Christians show forth. We show this in the, this is the gospel being made manifest. Um, now, 
we can ask a few other questions about things like uh, like um, capital punishment, and we will mention that here uh, in the next answer. But but the the center of all of this is not to kind of have a, a fine, upstanding moral response to uh, to complex moral questions. Um, it, it's that Christians need to be people who show forth the gospel, and the gospel is always a gospel of life. Um, it's that God loves human life. He loves it. It's sacred to him. Okay, so let's move on. Question 313. Is it always wrong to harm or kill another? There are circumstances in which justice, the protection of the weak and defenseless, and the preservation of life may require acts of violence. It is the particular task of government to uphold these principles in society. However, our Lord calls us to show mercy and to return evil with good. I love this kind of measured clear response that the catechism has. Okay, so the first thing to say is there are circumstances in which justice, the protection of the weak and defenseless, and the preservation of life may require acts of violence. Okay, here's the example. Something like self-defense, right? Where I might, and I say might, might, it might be a very key word, I might, in a way that is just, take the life of an aggressor against me or my family, or someone that I'm, I have a duty to protect. Um, not because I'm murdering the aggressor, because that's not what I'm doing, um, and it can't be defined as unjust. It could be willful, but it may not be. Un, it may not be unjust. Um, there are places where it could be unjust, and I'll say a little bit about that. Where I undertake a violent act that will mean that that aggressor will die. And we can say that's not murder. Well, why? Because it wasn't just. Because it wasn't unjust. Okay. Um, it was willful, but it might not have been unjust. Let me say a little bit more about what I mean. If a man comes at you with his fists, um, I don't think that there's a way in which Christians should say, "Well, you can just shoot him," because that response is not proportional. We actually have this long um, tradition of, of just war, um, and it's not a theory. It's actually a tradition of thinking, and thanks to David Corey for that. Uh, but, but it says, no, your response can't be, um, it, it has to be a proportional response. Okay? Anything that goes beyond the proportional becomes uh, an act of vengeance, becomes an act of, of uh, pride, an act of anger, um, and you can't do that. Um, one of the other things is, if there's a way to subdue the aggressor without killing them, then you should do that. Right? We should say that strongly. Um, if you can just, if you can take charge of the situation and get him to stand down or arrest him or whatever, then you need to do that. You, have, you in fact have a duty to do that. Okay. Um, so I want to say that strongly. And by the way, all these things that apply on the, on the very micro level, um, we might say like a home invasion or something like that. All the things that apply there also apply on a much broader basis. So when it comes to things like war, for instance, right? Um, the, the just war tradition teaches us strongly that you can't, uh, you can't break out of the, the constructs of proportionality just because what the other guy did was heinous, right? Um, and this is actually, you know, I'll say this to you today, um, it's one of the things that Christians have uh, been very concerned about, especially with regard to our nation. Right? The question is, particularly about use of nuclear weapons, right? Can they ever be proportional? No, they can't be. 
Um, and in fact, I've come to the conclusion that the use of nuclear weapons is just like gravely disordered and wrong because it, it always violates this principle. Um, the other thing is that, uh, that you cannot target non-aggressors, right? And, and we can see this on the micro level, right? You have an aggressor coming at you. You know, you can't just sort of take your machine gun and open fire and go from side to side and kill anything that's in the path of, you know, just because you want to make sure you got the guy. Like, no, that's not how it works. Um, to kill the innocents along with the aggressor um, is unjust. So we have to say things like that. Um, the other thing you have to say is you, have, you actually have to have the authority to do this, right? So... Um, uh, a, a great example, and this, this specifically, specifically refers to legal authority, right? Um, let's use the example of someone who's serving in the army, and they've not been given permission to open fire. Um, they have standing orders of engagement for that reason. Um, and if they break them, they can be, tr be court-martialed, and they should be, right? because they've done something which breaks the structure of how we engage in warfare. Now, um, we should say this, that uh, these acts are often included in the tasks of government, good government, to uphold these kinds of principles in society. And, and I would say, uh, really today, just into a number of situations, right? And, I, and I'm, I'm having some conversations that will be put out in another podcast on this. But that uh, as Christians and as Americans, um, we really do need to uphold the law, particularly when it comes to things like uh, due process, meaning that someone cannot be deprived of their life without due process. Okay? Um, and this is happening. We see it happening. We know this is happening. People, people, you know, um, no-knock warrants, uh, uh, police brutality leads to death, uh, and, which is murder, um, and, and all manner of things that we can just reject. Right? But the government still does, have, still does have a responsibility to uphold these kinds of principles um, and uh, may undertake acts of violence to defend the weak and protect the defenseless okay, and to preserve life. Um, and it falls to those who have the authority to do that, to do that, right? So that's important. Um, finally, just a word about, uh, about capital punishment. Um, capital punishment can... Uh, be seen in parts of the Christian tradition to run contrary to our understandings about the upholding of the sanctity of life. And um, I, I, what I will do here is say that, um, that the church, the church, has no official teaching on the question of capital punishment. There's certainly questions in scripture where, uh, where there's an understanding that capital punishment can be undertaken, and indeed where it should be undertaken because there's no other way to defend the community. Um, against a terrible aggressor, okay? So we'll just say that. And, and that's actually the teaching of not only Anglicanism, but also the Roman Catholic Church teaches that when there's no way to subdue the oppressor aside from taking his life, then you have to take the life of the aggressor. Okay, so we'll just say that. Um, I think we have the means to uh, keep certain criminals at bay till their life's end, till their natural end. And we ought to. Um, I'll say that strongly. I think there's something about not returning evil for evil that, that fits in that. And there's also something about doing only what is necessary to subdue this person. Um, uh, that is inherently uh, the kind of act that we Christians ought to support. Um, having said that, 
uh, I do think that there are times when, um, when, and I would say I will say this as well that that governments are given this prerogative, um, and uh, and can use it. Um, now, we can philosophize all day long about what would I do in that situation and how would I do it. Um, but but I will tell you that for my part, I, I can't do that. And also, I would say as well, um, I've I've actually made the decision in recent years that I would I I cannot serve ever on the jury for a capital murder trial. I won't do it. I'll refuse. I'll say that as a Christian priest, I can't do this. I can't be um, the jury that sends someone to an execution. I can't be a part of that. And it's not because I don't think that execution might not be warranted. It's because um, I can't operate as a minister of the gospel. And uh, and that might apply to lay people too. Um, and do this. So just want to give you kind of the nuanced uh, portion of that. But I, I think that there's an allowance for, in, in the Christian tradition, for both perspectives on this. This is kind of one of those things like both perspectives are inside the playground, okay? So uh, they're not fenced out. Uh, they're actually inside the playground. This um, Christian pacifism and, on the other end, a kind of um, uh, understanding of proportional justice, okay? Um, although, just one more thing. <laughs> uh, I, I will say as an observer of society and culture that one of the things I notice is that we have become much more retributive in our understanding of justice um, as a nation, um, meaning that the, the, the hammer of justice in the, in the nation is used to bring down retribution on behalf of the society and on behalf of the victims right, than it is to bring about the restoration of that, of that citizen. Um, we almost never think that someone is able to be restored or uh, or rehabilitated. We almost always think, like, no, that that can't happen, that doesn't happen. And that's really what surrounds things like life sentences, right? Um, and and also, I will say as well that uh, we see that all the time, right? We see people who are serving prison sentences that are unbelievably long, given the crime. Um, and we as Christians should oppose that because it's, it's disproportionate, right? Um, there was a man uh, several years ago here in Waco who, who, had, who had two felony convictions prior in his life, but he'd served his prison sentences. And he uh, wound up stealing ribs from the HEB that I go to on a daily basis. And for this, he was put in prison for 20 years. He's still serving. He's got another 15 years to go for $20 worth of ribs. And you have to ask yourself, like, what kind of justice is in play there? And is it really justice? Is he receiving his due? Or is he receiving more than that? Is the kind of justice which we're meeting out retributive? Or is it seeking his restoration? And, and I, I really do. I have to say, I'm, I'm very much concerned that our nation is going much more towards retribution than towards restoration. Um, the way that we deal with drug crimes, for instance, is much more focused on retribution, much more focused on um, on punishment uh, than it is on uh, restoration. Um, and, you know, we can actually see this in how we name our prisons, right? What are prisons called now? Well, um, we call them things like correctional institutions. Um, we, we used to call them things like penitentiaries. Um, now we just call them prisons, right? So we have this we have this issue that, that's going on. Okay. If you have any questions about this, I, I really do want to sit down with you and, and go over it because, you know, I realize lots of people come from very different perspectives on this, but I, I, I do think that we as Christians can um, 
can approach these questions as Christians and as disciples. All right, question, question 314. This is a real slog, but we're going to get through it. Usually it takes two Sundays to get through this, so we're doing well already. Uh, how should Christians understand the value of life? All life belongs to God. Human life is especially sacred because we are created in God's image and because Jesus came to give us new and abundant life in him. Christians, therefore, should act with reverence towards all living things and with special regard for the sanctity of human life. We should value human life to the point where uh, we, anytime we see an act of aggression, anytime we see an act of violence towards another human being, we should be horrified by it. Because this is one who's created in God's image. And they might be a perpetrator of evil acts. They might be a, a, a violent and aggressive person. They might be an evil. They might be, you know, captivated by evil, right? But we cannot say that this person is no longer made in the image of God. We have to say that. Um, we also cannot say that this person is beyond God's forgiveness because we hold that all human beings are uh, are capable of receiving God's goodness, God's goodness and forgiveness. So we want to say that very strongly. Um, Jesus, in taking on uh, human life in the incarnation doesn't just take on the good people. Um, in fact, he explicitly rejects this idea. He says, you know, uh, the, the, the healthy have no need of a physician, but who needs a physician? Well, those who are sick. He came not um, to, to serve uh, the, the, the righteous, but sinners. Um, he dies as a man condemned to capital punishment for our sins. Um, and so we have a duty to act with reverence towards all living things. This is very important, too. I, I think we need to say this, that um, it, it's often considered that as long as I don't exercise violence towards uh, a human being, I can exercise violence towards all manner of other things. Right? Um, and... Uh, uh, this is very problematic, right? Um, now, uh, we certainly, as Christians, have never rejected, you know, the prerogative to uh, to eat animals, right, or things like that. And, and I, I know that you know many people will disagree with that, but uh, we've never officially opposed that. Um, we're not because we're not rigorously vegan or things like that. That doesn't that doesn't fit with Christian teaching. Um, but um, we do need to have a reverence towards it, and I think that's important. Um, and a special regard for the sanctity of human life. Um, human life serves in a very unique way within creation to show forth the glory of God. Um, and when it is, uh, when human life is, is victimized by violence and injustice, uh, it it uh, it can't help but be a form of 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 blasphemy. So. I'm going to say that too. Okay. How did Christ cause life to flourish? Jesus sought the well-being of all who came to him. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, cast out demons, raised the dead, preached good news, forgave his enemies, and offered his life to redeem ours. I love how this is put. Jesus sought the well-being of all who came to him, and even people who didn't come to him, uh, people who were brought to him. <laughs> uh, one of the things that, I, that I've discovered lately in Scripture um, is that um, Jesus doesn't heal people so that they can follow him. Most of the time when he heals someone, he heals them and, and says, go back to your life. Like, go back and do whatever it is what you were doing before because that's got value and goodness in and of itself. He heals us so that we can be who we've been called to be in our lives. Um, 
this is such a joy to get this. Um, that not every Christian needs to be a full-time uh, professional minister. Like, that's not the case. Um, but, but back into the life that is a good life, that, that is a life which shows forth the glory of God, that is, I will say this strongly, a priestly life in which the, the human being cooperates with God to bring forth the fruits of the earth and, and stands between God and creation. Um, Jesus enters into this beautifully. He cares for those who are sick by healing them. He feeds those who are hungry. And then what does he do? He, he sends them home. He casts out demons. Love that. Wonderful story of the, the man in, um, in, in, uh, in uh, the Decapolis who has many demons. And he casts the demons. Jesus casts the demons into a herd of swine. And the man is the man wants to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And, and what did you say? He sends him. Like, go home. Go home. Go home and tell your neighbors what God has done for you. <laughs> like, go home and do that. Um, he preaches the good news. He forgives his enemies. Uh, you know, he forgives his enemies from the cross. Um, there's a there's a kind of justice which we see in Jesus. We which is actually the justice of God. And when Christians uh, cause life in all its forms to flourish, the world around us sees the justice of God, sees the love of God. Um, and I should say this, you know, the love of God and the justice of God are not distinct. They, they actually co-inhere within the person of, of within, well, within, within the divine being. Okay. How else can you obey this commandment? As a witness to the gospel and a follower of Christ, I can also keep this commandment by forgiving those who wrong me, patiently refraining, refraining from ungodly anger and hateful words, defending the unborn, vulnerable, and oppressed, rescuing those who harm themselves, and seeking the well-being of all. Let's break this down a little bit. Um, I know it's toward the end. Um, this is actually the last question in this section. I can keep this commandment as a, as a witness to the gospel. So that first needs to be said. We, we keep this commandment, the sixth commandment, as a witness to the gospel. Um, which, you know, in a, in a very basic form is that uh, God took on human flesh and died among us unjustly uh, to save us from sin and to restore us to glory. Um, and we, too, need to be a people of forgiveness for that reason. Um Think about that wonderful parable that Jesus tells about the man who's forgiven a great debt. It's, you know, in the in the parable, it's an unbelievable debt. It's 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 you know, it's a bajillion dollars, right? It's it's a, it's it's so far beyond that we can't even think about what it would be like to owe that much money and be forgiven of it. And then he goes and shakes down his uh, his his master's debtors for fifty bucks, for ten dollars. Um, this is what it's like to be. Uh, one who has been forgiven of so much and to be unforgiving in your own life. It's a betrayal of the gospel um, to avoid this kind of ungodly stewing anger right? is so important. I've known so many people who are so full of anger that, that they can't even entertain the possibility of a flourishing relationship with their heavenly father um, or a flourishing relationship with Jesus Christ uh, because they're so bogged down in anger towards what another has done to them. And when you hear about what, what's been done to them, it's almost unbelievable. You say, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. But you still have to say, 
you've got to let go of your anger because it's killing you. Um, anger is at the heart of so much that plagues our society and culture. So much. Um, marriages disintegrate because husband and wife aren't willing to forgive each other. Um, men, in particular, women as well increasingly, get into all forms of pornography addiction. And at the heart of that addiction is anger. It's anger. And there's such there's a wonderful book about this. Um, uh, which I want to encourage you to read if you struggle with this, called Unwanted. But it's anger because at the heart of your life, you felt unwanted. Um, unwanted, not just sexually, but unwanted as a human being. Uh, not desired, uh, not valued, not cared for. And so uh, it is no surprise that when children in particular feel that they're unwanted, feel that they're, uh, un- that they're not cared for, um, like they're just a kind of um, annoyance to their parents' lives in particular. Um, they start to take on all this unwanted behavior. They don't want to be addicts, um, but they start to take it on because it's an outlet for their, um, for their desires, uh, which are good desires at the heart, but they're acted on in a sinful way. Um, so we've got, to, we've got to really work on anger. <laughs> um, and, and the way to let go of it... Um, there are two ways. The first is to pray, of course, to pray for our enemies, pray for those who have hurt us, um, to forgive them. But it's also to see, and I think this is a this is a very important practice that Christians can have, to see how what others meant for evil, God can use for good. So to look, especially at our families, when you think of the one who 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 coined that phrase, Joseph in in Egypt, it says what you meant for evil, God meant for good. By saying this, he's saying something really important. He's saying, hey, uh, you know, the past is the past. And it it was bad. It was bad. But here's what I'm going to do. Okay. I'm going to reinterpret the past in the light of God's providence as something that God can mean for good. You meant it for evil. God means it for good. God means every evil thing for good. And and it changes everything, right? It, it, It means that there's this wonderful reconciliation which takes place between him and his brothers and his father. Um, That's what can happen because we choose to reinterpret the past, especially those things that fill us with so much anger. And there are people who live as captives to anger, um, unable to let go, unable to, to, uh, to drop to debts that others owe to them. Um, And what winds up happening, if I can just be, blunt about it is you wind up enslaving the people who wronged you. They become a slave to your emotional state. They become a slave to your anger. Even if they never think of you, right? In your mind, they owe you something. They owe you an apology. They owe you a, uh, you know, they owe you whatever it is. And, and Christians holding on to debts like that is just a betrayal of the kind of debt that we've been forgiven. So I want to encourage you in that. Let go of anger. If you need help processing that, if you need help working through anger, um, I, I'm happy to help in that regard. One of the best things you can do is just make a confession. <laughs> just, just come to the church. I'll meet you here. Uh, make a confession. Let go of that anger. Confess that you've had that anger. And ask God to take it away. I want to say a word about um, these last few sections about defending the unborn, the vulnerable, and the oppressed, and rescuing those who harm themselves and seeking the well-being of all. 
Um, these forms of care uh, have become very much uh, at the heart of what a great vast portion of our society uh, wants to see. And in fact, um, you know, we see in the American left a desire to care for others, which is laudable. We should laud it. I mean, this is a very good thing that we want to care for others. And they want, they really want to seek fairness and equality and all those things. Those are good things. Um, but then the river meets the road and it's like, well, what about the unborn? What about the vulnerable? What about, uh, what about those who um, um, are, are, uh, are, are not in the good graces of our society? Um, what about them? Um, and we see that there's a disconnect that takes place there. Um, we, we as Christians need to be people who defend the defenseless. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, well, I struggle with him. He, he was a complicated relationship, but, but Stanley Hauerwas says that, um, if Christians can be known as simply as those who don't murder their unborn children and who don't murder their elderly, then we'll have done quite well. And I think that's really true. That if, if that's what we're known for, it's being, you know, in the spite of, in spite of a culture that is completely like giving themselves over to death in those forms in particular, um, if we're known as just the, simply the people that don't, don't abort our children and don't murder our elders, then we'll have done quite well. Because we'll have encapsulated the gospel, right? We'll, we'll have really internalized it. Um, finally, uh, the, the Catechism commends rescuing those who harm themselves and seeking the well-being of all. Um, it's a very dangerous thing to seek the well-being of your neighbor. It's a very trying thing um, because you often get sucked into the drama, right? Um, you get sucked into the drama of their lives and, and uh, in a way that, that can often be uh, very difficult. You know, it's, it's like um, you know, one of the things I learned in lifeguard training as a Boy Scout was you, know, you don't want to jump into the pool with somebody who's bigger and stronger than you and is flailing around they will knock you out and you'll be dead too. Okay. Um, so you got to be careful about this. Um, but I think there are ways in which the Christian community as a whole in the church can respond to those who are deeply hurting and, and really in a great deal of despair and who are hurting themselves and who are harming others and who are, uh, are really suffering a way to come to their aid. Okay. Uh, and so one of the things I want to encourage you to do is, is, is first off to just, you know, let me know if there's anybody in your life who's, 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 who's hurting, who could use some help. Um, uh, there reaches a point where I reach my end and I can't quite uh, help out, but there's always somebody that we can refer people to. And so um, I want to encourage you in that. And I also want to encourage you as, as, a, as a friend of people who are hurting, you know, how to do that, how to do it well. Um, there are ways to do that well. Um, and, and the reason is that, that we do, we, we value, we value deeply human life. And in this time in which so many people are struggling with so many things, struggling with, uh, you know, economic struggles and struggling with, um, with emotional struggles and struggling with mental health issues in particular, uh, and chronic illness, uh, we really do need to be a support to one another and a support to our neighbors. And, uh, and the way that we keep this commandment is not simply by not murdering, but by, uh, upholding the value and the deep value of human life in all things. Um, may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.